it is also very clear in the banking industry, and a recent study has showed it, that if you have an all-male board in a bank, that bank is on average both more risky, so a bigger risk profile, and less profitable. Welcome to The Digest, the podcast where we get real about diversity and inclusion on the ground, looking at the stories and the journeys of activists and allies in the DNI space globally. My name is Helen Maguire. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Diversely, and I'll be talking to all sorts of characters from around the world about what they're doing in the DNI space and their journey to get there. Edwige Noyen is my guest today. She is the CEO of the International Banking Federation, Chair for European Women on Boards. She is a global speaker, mentor, and huge DNI champion, having just come back from COP in Egypt. I think those titles probably speak for themselves, but what they don't tell you is the journey that she's been on to get there. This is a fascinating chat. I I really enjoyed it. There's so much to take away from this. I hope you do too. Let's get into it. Good morning, Hedwige. How are you and where are you right now? Good morning, uh, Helen. Uh, I'm back home after uh, one month of a very long trip. So very back to be at home uh, by Christmas. (laughs) <laughs> yes, exactly. And um, I know you've been, uh, as you say, on a on a very long kind of whirlwind worldwide trip, which we'll certainly get into. But before we do, I would love to hear from your perspective about your role and um, what you're up to currently, because I know you wear multiple hats. Absolutely. So I've been in banking my whole life, and now I'm the CEO of the International Banking Federation, which is an organization headquartered in London, representing the banking industry worldwide. But uh, apart from all those exciting things, from a very young age, I wanted to help women and uh, to inspire other women as soon as I could, and that I've been doing for more than 20 years. So apart from uh, my banking career, I'm now also the chair of European Women on Boards. You say it so lightly, but those are phenomenal titles to hold and and to have managed to attain in your career. But before we get into that, I'd love to kind of cycle back, um, I suppose, as you say, to your childhood and your aspirations there and, and where that came from. Tell us a little bit about where you were born, where you grew up, how that was for you. Yeah, so um, I'm nearly 60 years old now, and I was born in the very, very uh, same place as I'm still having my home now, in a family with, in a way, educated parents, but um, a father desperate to having a boy. So when I came as the second child after my uh, big sister, this was such a great disappointment for them, so much that they didn't even have a name for me, a name for a girl. So I grew up in a, in a strange family where being a girl was actually a disadvantage and they had no single uh, expectations for me. So that felt really weird. A lot of aggression, a lot of uh, bad things happened. But one good thing came out of it. First of all, I studied the best I could because I, I knew that was my only hope. And second, I really convinced myself that if ever I could have a role, I could have something to say, I would help others. And that feeling is still in me today, actually. So privilege is a a strange thing, but lacking privilege is is also a strange feeling. And uh, with that hope that you can have to make a better world and to help others, it's something that kept me alive. Yeah, absolutely. And and talk to us a little bit about some of those experiences when when you were growing up. 
you know, how did that kind of manifest itself? Were you left out of things? Were you not given opportunities? Were you, was it a case of not being encouraged? How did that kind of come about on a day-to-day basis? So uh, after me, uh, we had five other girls. So we ended up with seven girls, which was way too much for the family. So basically, we had to work a lot at home. We had to really help them and be the the standing mother for my youngest sister, who was, uh, I was only only nine when the seventh was born. So uh, being a little bit uh, standing mother. And then basically at, at school, we were left alone. So we were going to school alone. We came back alone. We had to study alone. Nobody was paying attention. But in a way, it was like a separate world because um, you could just study. I was interested in many things. I was also very good at things. And then, you know what, Helen, you learn to survive. You learn to survive in, in a way that you you have to separate your own inner world that is very vulnerable and very... Uh, of course, damaged by all the aggression and the hunger, and then try to see what is my only hope. It's I, I knew I was having to wait until I was 18 years at some point. So you grow up very fast. You, you learn to survive, to really be able to try to avoid punishment, because, uh, of course, punishment was very physical. Yes, yeah, so you live in two separate worlds. You gain a lot of emotionality that you hide. And it was only after in my second life when I met my husband that emotional part was able to uh, to let go and and to come into uh, tuition. So yes, it's a very damaged youth. But I think if you uh, if you happen to have the chance to meet later in life people who can really love you and treasure you, it's also a very big strength because I did not come from a privileged background. Yeah, I mean, that that much is very clear from, from what you're saying. And where was your mother in all of this at, at this time? I presume she was slightly buried under under that many children, for one thing. Well, um, my both parents were highly educated, but uh, my mother, of course, with all the children, was not allowed to work. And she very much was also part of the situation. She 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 didn't have enough time for us and mm-hmm. basically she did not uh, deliver what my father wanted so that's a very sad situation which is happening across the world still now isn't it yeah yeah exactly and your sisters how how did they cope you know are they are they as successful as you are <laughs> oh I, I think i i managed to work the hardest of everyone so everyone that uh, tried to find their own way uh, perhaps i I developed a kind of character to to wanting to uh, to gain uh, more ambition in professional life. So they were all working or volunteering or taking care of their kids. And my younger sister died 10 years ago. She was uh, disabled um, uh, for all kinds of circumstances. Uh, so she died a long time ago. But they're all doing well. And we have an extremely uh, well-connected family. My, my mom is still alive. She's not in very good health, but still alive. And in a way, uh, I have good relationships with her, relationships of warmth and love. My, my father died 20 years ago. And uh, it's with no regret, you know, Helen, you you make peace of it, you you try to learn the circumstances, understand what happened and the circumstances they were in. And so mm. I try to think of the good things and try to take that, that vulnerability uh, in me and carry in me as part of myself, actually. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as you say, for you, it was about keeping your head down, working really hard. You were 
you were clearly gifted in many areas at school and, and throughout your, your education. And that became the kind of guiding light for you. What did that bring you? Where did you go, I suppose, once you, you managed to leverage that and move away from home? So when I was 18 years, I went to university. I was able to live by my own, take care of myself. So I was not confronted to that daily um, problematic uh, Mm. family. I studied very well, got many friends and um, very high degrees. And in my last year, I met my husband. And that was the the joy of my life. My future husband, we met. He didn't want to marry me at first. (laughs) I was very convinced that he was the man. Uh, and then we married uh, soon. I was uh, 22 years. And um, well, I, I always say, Helen, that it was the first day of my real life, uh, of a life where I could really be myself and don't be afraid every day, every night. Um, and so it's uh, it's a very big joy to be able to to meet somebody like that. Yeah, absolutely. And and as you say, that vulnerability that that you had, and I suppose that that it was something that you buried, right? It was something that you kind of had to hide and and just kind of get on with things in in your day to day. How did that then manifest itself from that point onwards? I mean, how did you deal with with your past with with your husband and and from a career perspective as well? So that was, of course, my private life. I think that I made perhaps the same mistake in my professional life. When I started, I was 22 years old, working in a bank. I was doing the same pattern that I was used to do. So working very hard, my head down, try to see how I can uh, how, how I can deliver. But actually, that is not what gets you a promotion in a company, in, in business. It's not only about working hard. It's also about being visible, creating impact, building alliances. And it was after a few years that I noticed that all that hard work didn't get me anywhere. And um, it was all, only later, in, even later in life, uh, when I was 10 years, 15 years working, um, that with a coach, I learned to see that by being too hard or too hardworking, I could also give that impression of being a, a tough person. And by allowing myself to also show that other side, that empathy, um, reading the room, uh, showing what I can do, also letting yourself show that energy, but not the external energy, but the inner strength. So the soul, the the conviction, the passion, uh, using that inner energy. And that coach gave me very good advice in that. And I also think, Helen, that through other adversity that came in my life, because there were ups and downs many, many times, you learn that it's not only about performance on stage, which is very much the alpha male uh, way of doing, but for me, it's um, learning to to speak less sometimes, learning to feel before you think, learning to let go before you act, learning to have empathy for somebody's suffering also in the workplace. It's only going through those curves that I learned that by also being more myself in the workplace and not wanting always to be the first, uh, being afraid to be left out, that I actually became a better leader, I think. that I mean, I think there are so many people out there that could learn from what you've just said, because it, it feels like a very scary thing to do. And I presume, particularly in your case, given your past and, and what that might have meant for you when you were a child, if you'd have done something like that, 
it must have been quite a difficult path. I, I presume that did not happen overnight. No, no, no. But that's one of the nice things of uh, of wisdom. Huh? So uh, in 2008, for example, we had the financial crisis. I had a very responsible role. And you are responsible for something you cannot manage at all. I, I can tell you, Helen, that it was 18 months, very scary period in my life with kids that were still very young and, and were very afraid of what was happening to their mom. Uh, then also in my, my private life, uh, losing my dad and sickness, etc., etc. But of course, in a way, that's also life, isn't it? I, I mean, suffering happens. That uh, it's only that also in my person, in my in my um, company life, I was really responsible of, of very very big things. And I would say, Helen, that be aware of your vulnerable side, also allowing yourself to doubt. Still now, doubting every single day, this has been my blessing. Because uh, when I when I've been looking around, also the financial crisis, the most scary thing, Helen, is a leader who thinks he knows all, who has no doubts, who has only one solution, knows what is best for him and for everyone else, and doesn't allow any challenge, nor from others, nor from himself. That's scary, and it's way better especially when you are, you are at the top of a company or at the top of your family or you're having a responsible role to allow that little voice in yourself that might want to tell you something, be it your body, be it your soul, be it your values. I would say what you have to take in mind is that you have to listen to the voice, but it should not stop you then from willing to achieve your goal. So it should be a dialogue and not an inner, inner dictator. So, and once that I was able to better juggle with that, so feel the, the fear, as they say, feel the fear inside, but do it anyway. If you really have challenged it and you think, okay, I, I hear you, I listen, and now I go on stage and I'm going to do it. And talk us through that 2008 experience a little bit, because as you say, there are a lot of things happening in your life at that point. What was your role in banking then? And what were you doing I suppose, to support other women around you at that, at that point? At that, at that point, it was, of course, more a, a job role. So I was responsible for a very large bank for the relationships with the supervisors. And we were literally going bankrupt. I, I, could, I, I, I saw it coming from a very long time, but I wasn't mm. able to talk with anyone in the firm because the, the, the executive uh, layer was completely denying any problem. So you are in charge at that moment of relationships with an external stakeholder, very important party. In the company, you have no support because they say, no, it's going to be all right, it's going to be all right. Um, and so you are literally against split. You have to try to do your best to represent a firm. You have no support and no, no sounding platform in the company. Then you had another thing. At some point, the, the firm was going to get bankrupt and so you had a lot of employees my colleagues the team I was in charge those people were scared a lot because when a bank is going bankrupt or could go bankrupt it's not only the employees losing their job or threatening to lose their job they will lose their deposits they have in the bank they might lose their pension Mm. The, the society was collapsing because the financial system was uh, actually um, uh, also spilling over to society. It was a, a complete uh, potential meltdown in the system. 
And it was the very supervisors that could save it together with the public authority. So I was in the midst of all this game and it, um, it took quite a number of months to unfold. So literally, uh, I was looking at the news every single time. I was 24 hours looking at the news, looking at information to try to see what I could do. My husband helped a lot, but it was, of course, also for him totally out of control. So I think two things kept me going. First, I knew I had the role to play. So I knew I had to do my utmost best uh, to try to uh, to stay on. And second, very strangely, when the whole world is collapsing, again, that inner part, I try to be with my people, colleagues, and family as close as I could. So again, you have that role, very hard, you cannot predict the outcome, but then you have the human side. And then listening to the fear of the people saying, I get you, I, I feel it, I... Yes, it's really horrible and I can, I can sense what it means to you, but that kind of solidarity that you get with people and allowing that to happen and also in the workplace, um, creating space for people to cry, to tell about their despair and by sharing that despair, actually helping each other because you have that kind of also hormonal, it's very feminine, but that kind of touch and feeling and enormous energy and warmth and well that's something that uh, it's incredible but it's really true it's a very rare pose a very rare insight a very rare thing to hear about the banking industry you know the financial crisis has been discussed from many different angles but this is you know the feminine side of it and and what happened for you and for your colleagues and the way that you handled it is not something that most people would would predict or um, expect to hear about this type of situation. Do you think that it changed your career pathway? How did it change things within the bank? Have things changed for the better off the back of that? Yes, of course. So there were many lessons learned. And uh, of course, we, we can say a lot about uh, banking and the banking world. But even in the banking world, you have many different kinds of persons. Eh? You have the good and the bad. And the, the fundamental problem of not having sufficient challenge at the top of companies was certainly one of the reasons of the financial system. Mm -hmm. And then the lessons learned was much more regulation, much more importance given to supervisors. Uh, so a lot has changed in the banking industry. And so I was then also part of that change and now we're presenting the banking industry. So I can tell that now the situation is much more sound and financially solid, but it starts in other parts eh, with the crypto world now that is uh, unfolding, uh, unfortunately. So it doesn't mean that you cannot have bad situations emerging otherwise or elsewhere. Yeah. And now with the, with the war. So the same kind of power dynamics do come back, and that's part of humanity in a way. And so there is a there are a lot of parallels to uh, to to see with uh, the war in Ukraine and similar. Helen, very bad things happening, and we might sometimes look too much, and you have to, of course, look at those really awful things. But there is the whole other side, the solidarity. 5 billion, 7 million of people that have been welcomed and, and sheltered, all the other forces in play. And that is what my role is as well. If you are in a position of power, 
how to create alliances, how to understand, how to represent an industry, even though there are sometimes difficult things to say. It's a choice you make in your life. Are you going to be part of the power play, even though some things are not what mm. you would like? Are you going to try to contribute for the better? Or do you say it's not for me? That's a, a very personal choice. And you you are really now putting yourself front and center within these conversations as part of these conversations. I want to pick up on something you said about balance, actually, because, you know, you're talking about the financial crisis back in 2008. We are a good way on from that now. And you're relating that lack of balance at the top of the chain. And when you say that, are you talking about kind of gender balance? Are you talking about representation? Because that's something that's usually leveled at at big corporations. And, and, you know, let's take the war in Ukraine as an example as well. Um, areas where things go to the extreme, there tends to be a lack of balance. Is, is that what you mean by that? Yes, uh, absolutely. And uh, of course, gender balance is one of the things, but that, mm. that is what I was able to, of course, do then in my work with women. And now uh, as the chair of European Women on Boards, what we say is that if you really want to have a, a better balanced world, if you really want to have better performing companies, you need that diversity in the board. You need that diversity at the top. And so diversity of gender is only one of the dimensions. But uh, European Women on Boards is striving for all diversity. And so when we say we want 40% women in, in boards and executive committees, we really mean all women. And so for us, it's not only women, women, it's certainly not only white women, it's also women with a different background, different financial means, different uh, ethnicity, different religious beliefs. So we very, very much are looking to have that diversity of talent that gets a chance. And then I would say also try to, to work in both worlds, as I've been saying a couple of times, uh, first, women need to be on board, so be onboarded uh, also with the, the diversity, which is can be more difficult. You have to try to understand the rules of the game. And then when you're part of that game, you can change the game itself. That's exactly what I'm doing. But it's way more easy if you understand how it works. And that's what we try to do as well. That's what I try to do as a, a, as a person as well to explain, to share the most I can from my experience, to mentor, to guide, and then, of course, also to change the rules and to change the system. Yeah, it's such a great 360 approach to the problem, because as you say, you can't change it if you're not in it, but to be in it, you need to understand it. So that education piece is is super important. Explain to us a little bit, I suppose, about, you know, as, as you say, you have two jobs, essentially, in terms of your CEO role right now, how have you looked to change things within the bank? What kinds of things have you brought in that perhaps weren't considered or weren't there before? Yeah, so I have a quite busy agenda. So I've been busy a lot with digital transformation. So with the whole transformation from physical banking to online banking, and now uh, everything related to the crypto world, perhaps a central uh, digital currency. So that whole idea of how is the world evolving? How can we uh, make that transformation secure for customers and for society? Uh, then COVID hit, uh, as you know, uh, so the role of banks in uh, reboosting and recovering the economy. 
And lately, um, for the last five years, I've been working a lot on climate change. So uh, I represent the whole industry. So it means going from this, the States to China, to India, to Australia, to Latin America, Africa. So creating that consensus in uh, the top of my organization that climate change is real, that climate change is something we have to take on. And that's also the reason why I was in, uh, in Egypt for the climate conference, presenting a report explaining what banks are doing in terms of financing the, the, the transition to net zero. So banks have an extremely important uh, role to play, but uh, I think you know that opinions on climate change can differ. So it's it's quite a big job to try to con uh, reconcile uh, the different points of view from US, Canada, America, and then um, China, India, and developing yeah. world as well. Yeah, a very, a very, very tough job. And in terms of, you know, the diversity that you mentioned for banking globally, how do you feel that has changed since you've taken up this role or, or let's say in the last kind of five to 10 years? It's evolving a lot, not, not uh, of course, as quick as we would like, but it is also very clear in the banking industry and a recent study has showed it that if you have an all-male board in a bank, that bank is on average both more risky, so a bigger risk profile and less profitable. And that's the reason why now supervisors that have a say in appointments of uh, board directors will increasingly put gender diversity as a criteria, as a criteria also of expertise in general, because it's they really want, and that's something that has been proven to be, uh, to be important, they want all kinds of skills and expertise represented around the table nationality, risk management, digital. And so by tapping into the full talent available, including, uh, in, of course, in the first place, women, uh, you have much more chances to have the best people on board. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's what we say all the time. It's really broadening that remit and being as inclusive as you can to attract the best talent. It's as simple as that. And, and I suppose with regards to that role, why would you say... You know, at this point in time, you are the right person. You know, it feels like a role that would typically, and this sounds terrible, but would typically be seen to be done by by a man, by somebody, you know, who is who who's been in the banking industry and who's moved up the ranks and who's networked and and so on. How have you managed to break that? chain because it's a, it's a phenomenal achievement it's of course also experience uh, helen so when i when i was uh, applying for the job i had done my job my homework of course as you can mm -hmm. imagine and and so i was uh, i was proposing my candidacy for a jury i was the only woman from all the candidates uh, all the other were men but i think i was the one that had prepared best so i yeah. was the one that had uh, uh, reaching out to each of the associations that would be in the jury, I knew exactly uh, who they knew. And so I had also a very broad network by the time. And so I had asked, very kindly asked, a few of my connections to, I, I said, I'm going to apply for the job. What do you think? Would you like to give a reference about me? And so in the jury, which was six or seven people, each of them, each of them from Japan to Australia to the US and, and UK had been briefed by one of their connection about the experience they had had with me and said, 
a few words. I don't know what they said, but they said, ah, we, we know that person, she has worked for us, she has done this and this. So not only did I apply in person and explain mm. what I was willing to do, but they had all heard of me by one of their references. And the second point that helped me is that uh, they were very afraid to have a CEO who would represent himself rather than the federation. Mm. And so they were actually not looking for a person with too much of an ego because they wanted a person who was able to concile the very big mm. differences they had amongst themselves that they were not always uh, finding easy to solve. So they were, they were looking for a person who could understand the banking industry perfectly well, that they could represent uh, without having an own voice, but the voice of the federation. And then third, would be able to solve the most impossible differences of opinion amongst, uh, amongst the table. How fascinating. I think, you know, I, I, when you explain it in that way, it is very, very obvious that you would be the best candidate for that role. And, you know, when, because, you know, we're having this conversation, it, I can't help but draw parallels to your childhood in some ways, you know, the role that you perhaps played within your family, reconciling those differences, smoothing the waters, listening, and as you say, then managing to use your vulnerability to guide and to lead and to pull people together. I mean, it you sound exactly like the perfect candidate when you put it like that, but it's from the outside, you would imagine that you know, it would be somebody with a, with a huge ego who goes around the world and, and talks about the great work that he is doing, for example. But that's what you see very often in politics. But I, mm. I must say that I also learned that uh, having a big ego on stage, it can help for a while, but it will certainly not uh, uh, get the results you want. And when, when I became chair of European Women on, on Boards and we really wanted the directive to be uh, voted after 10 years of blocking, it wouldn't have helped to have an ego, Helen. I mean, an yeah. ego doesn't get you anywhere because you have to negotiate with heads of states mm. uh, who are in a very complicated situation. So it is very much homework, trying to see who is blocking, why are they blocking, what are their problems. And if you want a political negotiation to come to a close, you have to find common interests. So lobbying advocacy is very much about mapping the stakeholders mapping the, the reasons why they are advocating something, and then very methodically creating bonds with people down the drain. You don't start with the head of state. You start with an aide and a, and a counselor and, and a lawyer to see how you can prepare the situation. You develop relationships of trust with the whole um, setting. You take time. You really prepare, you talk again, you are very determined, so you never let go. And so in those negotiations, European Women on Boards was also the goal between the European Commission, the states, the parliament, the French presidency that was leading the talks, the cabinets, the ambassadors in Brussels. And I was very much helped actually by a man in my board, uh, Nelson Bordelli, who is uh, one of the men we have on board, who knows the European Commission very well and who was extremely knowledgeable and helpful in getting those, um, those relationships done. We started in January with uh, Ursula von der Leyen uh, helping and, and being very vocal in supporting this uh, action. So this very week, the directive was voted in the Parliament after 10 years of blocking. So it is 
amazing. As Congratulations. It's, yeah, it's a stunning victory. And, and talk us through a little bit about what that means in practice. So what will change from here? So it's exactly what we have been setting up as a mission 10 years ago when the directive was blocked. So it is setting a target of 40% women on each board of each stock-listed company in the 27 countries of the European Union. But the very nice thing and intelligent thing that you have in this directive, it is not about just nominating women. That's also something women hate. It is about whenever there is a board mandate coming up for renewal, you have as a company to put forward the profile you're looking for, the expertise, the skills, publish it, be transparent, say how you are going to choose, and also explain why you choose the person you choose. You choose. Mm. And so it means that it's not about appointing women, it's about appointing the best candidate. Mm. But by having both as a company a target of percentage of women you are looking for, being public about it and being much more transparent and, and I would say qualitative in the selection procedure, we are very confident that you will move to 40% easily. You have to know, Helen, that by now at universities, women are 60% of the, of the population at mm. university. So 60% of the incoming talent now is women, female, with very, very nice job quality expertise. And so what we are also saying as European Women on Board, that's the whole program we have in place. Um, very often you hear, we would like women, we don't find them. Huh? And so what we have committed to as European Women on Board is setting up a talent pool of 1,000 women eager and ready to take up these roles. And we started uh, last year, we have more than 500 names right now, and we will have 1,000 by next year, as we promised. And those women get trainings, get um, skills in networking, in community. We also have lots of male allies uh, ready to support us. So it is a very methodic approach of saying mm. the policy, the directive is one thing. It's also filling the pipeline. It's also creating a framework, be present in 20 countries, and very much also creating alliances with corporates, with executive search firms. So again, you will always hear the same. First, creating relationships of trust, explaining why it's important. Also, one of my tricks, Helen, is making things easy. You tell me you are looking, you don't find them, I can give you three names. You say they don't respond, tell me, I will give you an introduction. You say it's complicated to set up a, a, set up a search, I'm going to ask you, how many do you have in your database? If it's not 50, 50%, well, if it's only 10%, you have lay with, uh, much less chance to, to find them. Yeah. So I will help you with the database. Uh, but tell me your figures. Uh, so it's kind, gentle, but also very determined. So with those executive search companies, how many in your database? How many do you invite? How many do you nominate to the company? And how many do you manage to appoint? So the numbers don't come easily, but... Uh, if you don't measure it, you will never get the result. I absolutely love that approach. And it completely echoes everything that we do with our platform. It's the reason it was set up. I mean, you know, data and analytics really has to underscore 
everything. You need to know your numbers as you would in any other element of, you know, of a business essentially. And and pipeline is key. Diversity of that pipeline is key. And the way to get that is to open the doors and be as inclusive as you possibly can in that search. And then yes, tracking and being transparent and taking bias out of the process so that you know that, as you say, it's not about hiring the best woman. It's about hiring the best person for that role but the more inclusive you can be and the more you can stack that pipeline the more chance you've got of of finding you know a woman who's just as capable as anybody else to do the job if not more so yes and i would say break the bias it's also understand the bias because what i actually noticed helen and it's um it can be feel strange we say we are very inclusive every talented woman that is listening today Uh, If you would like to know what you can do more, you can come to us. And still, after 12 months, what we noticed is that in our talent pool, even if though it's very inclusive and accessible, Mm. you would have a majority of women who were looking alike a little bit. And so we very quickly came to the conviction that if we want a really diverse population, we will have, of course, to welcome everyone. But the last 20%, Helen, this is going to be an intention, an intentional and focused approach to go and get to find underrepresented groups. Mm. And that's why now we are setting up partnerships with organizations, with networks, like in the UK, for example, that are explicitly a network of, for example, talented women with a black background or yeah. an Asian background. They are having networks that are so valuable. So even though you say you have no bias, in practice, it's really important that you check. And if you see that there is underrepresentation, rather than me trying to solve the world, creating alliances with others that are actually most happy together and to join forces. And I think this is perhaps also one of our female characteristics, rather than saying that I'm the only one who can solve it, creating alliances it can take more time in the beginning but then you you can't be stopped and you are so powerful in a way powerful we don't like that word impactful and um, you move forward and especially I think you move forward with much less collateral damage and yeah (laughs) exactly you're you're building positivity on on all fronts really and and I completely agree with that there's no need to reinvent the wheel if you know that somebody is excellent at what they do in the world what's the point in trying to you know redo that yourself you may as well as you say create those alliances and come together to fashion something that that solves the problem in a much more effective way. I think it's fantastic. And if there's women out there who are even thinking that they could be a good candidate for this, and as you say, there's a lot of training, there's a lot of kind of mentorship that goes with it as well. So you don't have to be the final article, let's say. What can they do? How can they reach out to you? Very easily via LinkedIn. They can reach out to me directly. They can look at our website, uh, europeanwomenonboards.eu. And uh, perhaps a final guideline that I would like to give, so especially for women who are taking on more responsibility and perhaps sometimes doubting, is this for me? Shall I go further? One of the big lessons that I had to learn is as I was moving forward to a bigger position, it's even more important to delegate. And that's something Mm. that I did as well in European Women on Boards, having two jobs uh, for so many months. Now we have appointed a new CEO with Kristen Anderson doing a wonderful job, a full executive committee. So 
in a woman's life, it's also very important. If you want to take on more responsibility, you will have to take up a new step. You have more work and then you have to delegate again and let go. So now I'm, I'm concentrating on, on my role as a chair. We have an operational team in place. And then there is a last thing that is so important. Actually, the most important person should be yourself. So whenever you take on such a big role or even having those difficult choices in life, it's really important to keep the right priority. So take time for yourself, take time to exercise, be really intentional in trying to focus on your own health, fitness, your family. It can sound cliche, but um, it's even more important if you are in a relationship of which comes with a lot of responsibility and it's something that I learned the hard way, but uh, that I try to practice also. And so uh, having the, those positions, be careful about the role. So now it's about be leaning back a little bit. I'm the chair, you have an operation place. And well, that means that you create again more space, perhaps to do something else uh, afterwards. So for all women in the audience, if you feel that eagerness or readiness, you don't know where to go, this is a place where you have nobody to ask for permission, nobody to ask for a big budget. You can do it yourself. So it's a big conviction of mine, Helen. When I was mm -hmm. a little girl, I thought if ever I can create a world where you are not dependent from a boss, a father, a brother, society, but you can just live the life you want and, and realize your dreams. That's really what we want, Helen. And you absolutely, I mean, you, you've nailed it. What else can I say? It's, it, it's a remarkable journey. And I'm honestly so privileged to have you on the podcast and for you to talk us through it. Thank you for all the work that you're doing and, and for sharing all your experiences. I think it's, it's absolutely remarkable. So thank you. And uh, I think this will have a huge impact on, as you say, other women's lives as well. So if you're out there wondering whether this is for you, as Hedridge says, please get involved, get in touch and be part of making a change. Thank you, Helen. It was a privilege talking to you. Thank you. Thank you, Edwige. I mean, what a journey and what an outcome at the end of it as well. It's a true success story and indeed will go on to be so much more successful and impactful in, in so many different ways, as we've heard. I hope you took away some little golden nuggets out of that chat, as certainly I did from many perspectives. And if you want to get involved with European Women on Boards, um, as she said, head over to the website check her out on LinkedIn. It's H-E-D-W-I-G-E, Edwige Nguyen, N-U-Y-E-N-S. Look her up. She is super open and friendly. And I think as you can hear, incredibly supportive to those around her. Thank you, Edwige. Thank you to you for listening. As you know, there's more over on the Diversely website if you head over there. There's plenty of resources to help you get started on your DNI journey, wherever you may be as a business or even as an individual. And we would love to hear from you if you have an impactful, remarkable story in the DNI space that you would like to share. Please reach out to me, Helen McGuire on LinkedIn, or uh, reach out to us through our website. And I will catch you next time. See ya.